hand, the kingdom of God. And uh, in the first chapter we talked about last week, uh, we noticed that this thing is of uh, some remarkable scope. Jesus has come to do nothing less than set the world to rights, to reverse sin and sickness and suffering and death. And he begins to do that in his ministry. It's remarkable. And yet it may be your experience, uh, it is your experience, and perhaps you've actually honest enough to answer this question, uh, that you would say, well, that's a great plan, but what about me? Because in my daily experience, it sometimes seems like maybe God's forgotten me. That uh, if God's putting things to rights, there are all kinds of things wrong in my life, and He doesn't seem to be addressing them. If I have needs and concerns and priorities, they don't seem to be God's concern. How are we supposed to think about that? That reality? I think we'll get a... uh, Head start on that question today as we read Mark uh, chapter 2. Let's uh, read together. And when he returned, that being Jesus, to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many gathered together so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be gracious to show us remarkable things in your word. Show us things about ourselves, maybe even things we don't want to see. But show us remarkable things about yourself as well. And press these things into reality in our hearts. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. In the uh, children's book, now movie slash Disney franchise, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, with which some of you are familiar, uh, Aslan makes a return to Narnia after a prolonged absence, and during his time away, uh, the, the uh, wicked witch, white witch, dead witch, which witch is she? I forgot her name. Um, has ruled the land cruelly. And uh, as the movie progresses and the lines are being drawn, and actually a battle's about to happen, uh, Aslan uh, does something strange. He uh, secretly, uh, covertly sneaks away, meets with his arch enemy, and gives himself up actually trades himself in for a traitor to their cause. Uh, Leaving his foes, of course, celebrating. Uh, This is the powerful conqueror. This is the head of the troops. Uh, This is the one that's supposed to turn the tide of the battle, and he's just given himself up. What a great fool. This is what the foes are thinking. Meanwhile, his friends, his allies, are dejected and and curious and astounded and wondering what's going on. Uh, He's abandoned them on the battlefield. It's clear that Aslan has his priorities, but... We don't understand them. And uh, that's the case with us often. In the midst of our daily lives and our personal battles and circumstances, uh, we trust that God is good, often, most of us, uh, if we believe in God. But we wonder where He is and where He's gone to. 
because sometimes in the midst of our daily trials, he doesn't seem to be very active or at work or to even care about the things that we seem to care about. It might seem like he's left us on the battlefield to fend for ourselves. Uh, But tonight, as we look at this text, and some of you are saying, that's not me at all. I'm going to prove it to you later, that it is you. Uh, But some of you are saying, yeah, I think like that. I wonder where God is sometimes, why he doesn't care about the things that seem to be important to me. I'm going to suggest to you that the problem isn't God's priorities at all. It's our priorities and our inability to trust God's goodness and to see his goodness. So tonight, and the outlines are around if you want one, uh, we're going to see that because Jesus knows and addresses our greatest need, we should trust him and come to him. Because Jesus knows and addresses our greatest need, we should trust him and come to him. And tonight we're going to consider three things about Jesus. His popularity, his priority, and then his power. So, Jesus' popularity, his priority, and power. And to talk about his popularity is a strange thing. It's a strange thing for many reasons. It's strange because I have no right to talk about popularity. I've never been popular a day in my life. True? Yes, not one single day. Um, to be popular requires uh, either a certain cachet, uh, either to work really hard and seek it and, and achieve it, or it has to just come natural. You know, you're the semi-aloof, but always cool person who's sort of diffident but cares and everyone dislikes you. Uh, I was never that, and I certainly never cared. So I was never popular, and I have no problem with that. Um, but it still makes me hard for to imagine what Jesus is going through because Jesus doesn't set out to be popular, and yet he is. We see in verse 1 that he, he returns. He returns from this time of ministry to what is sort of home base, Capernaum. And so many are gathered, there's no room, not even at the door. And unless you've traveled abroad, you don't really understand what this is like, uh, unless you've been to some rave house party here. Um, because I've heard some of you say, like, man, RUF was packed. And I'm like, really? Like, there's room for 30 more people sitting. And then, like, 60 more people standing. You know, when you don't have any room to move, that's packed. Like, in America, this is personal space. If you're within arm's reach, you're too close. That's not packed. Packed is you can't move. And that's the way this house was. Uh, they were packed. They came to see Jesus, and it, it just speaks of his popularity. In spite of his efforts, he didn't seek this. In the earlier chapter, uh, when one town responded like this and they all came out, what did he do? He got up in the middle of the night and went somewhere else. And by the end of chapter 1, he's so popular, he can't even go into a town. He has to go out into the wilderness to to speak. So Jesus is popular in spite of himself. And what does he do when he has a crowd? Verse 2, he preaches. He was preaching the word to them. Something else that's strange. A very popular preacher. We have some, but that's sort of what we have here in Jesus. Uh, He has a crowd, and he can do all kinds of things with them. He could uh, lead a revolution, which some will accuse him of. Um... He could run a slick marketing campaign and send these folks out and uh, take over. Um, he could make T-shirts and what would I do bands and pass them out to people. And all kinds of stuff like that. He doesn't do any of those things. He speaks God's word to them. He shares the good news of the, of the kingdom, of uh, what God is doing and going to do. And uh, Jesus is popular not only because of his preaching and his healing, but there's something about him. It, it attracts people. It pulls them. That's why the crowd's there. That's why these folks come in verse 3 and 4. They came bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Uh, there's something about Jesus that inspires confidence and faith in these men to actually come. They're, they're attracted. They're pulled to him. They believe, it seems, that Jesus can do something about this. Enough that they're persistent enough, as we'll see later, to dig through, the whole, dig through a roof. Uh, something about Jesus attracts them and pulls them. Imagine with 
me for just a second what it would be like to be the paralytic. Okay? And I have no idea what it would be like. Uh, I've never been significantly ill during my life, much less incapacitated as he would have been. But I can imagine, especially if he grew up this way, and the text describes him, uh, speaks of him as though he's probably a man, um, he spends his life this way. And perhaps as a small boy and a teenager, you know, he held out hope for healing. He prayed desperately to the God of the universe uh, that his fathers and sisters and uncles and aunts all worshipped. I know you can heal. Heal me. He would have he probably prayed this many times, and yet God never answered. And uh, as he grew older, it's quite likely, especially if he's someone like me, um, he would have said, this just hurts too much to hope. I'm done with the hoping. I'm shutting down the hope machine, and I'm going to cement this thing and protect it because hoping hurts. I'm tired of being disappointed. It's over. I'll just have to get used to this. Well, maybe he didn't do this. Maybe he's one of those optimistic, the sun will come out tomorrow kind of people. Uh, and good for him. But I can imagine him saying, it hurts too much to hope. And then on this strange day, when everyone's gone, everyone in the house is gone, all of a sudden, four friends or family members break in, and they're excited, and he sort of picks up on it, like, what's going on? And they say, this is God Jesus, and he heals people, and he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and we're going to take you. And I can imagine them saying, yeah, this is awesome. I don't, I don't want to go. Well, yeah, that's great, I, but I want to risk hope. And maybe even being hesitant to go and be disappointed again. But I can also imagine him being carried along from one house to another and seeing the blue sky and hearing the sand underneath the feet and beginning to imagine, I might be walking in five minutes and begin to hope and believe and trust and long for, but only to arrive at the door in verse 4 and not be able to get in and to be able to say, you idiot, why, why, why did you open yourself up again? Now, we don't know if any of that stuff actually happened, but I can imagine that happening. Maybe you can too. Whatever the case, he has very persistent friends. Maybe he wanted to give up and go home, but they didn't. And so they climb up on top of the roof and start digging away. Um, we have here in these men a wonderful picture of faith. They recognize a need. They're attracted to Jesus, and they persevere to him. They want to be in his presence. They believe he can do something. It's great. And so I could talk about faith, but actually I want to talk about friendship for a moment and ask you a couple questions. Um, do you got friends like this? In verse uh, 3, in verse 4, friends that know you well, know exactly what's wrong with you, deep down, know the real issue with you, and don't say, uh, well, that's too bad. Well, there's no hope for you. And of course, they would never say that, but by their actions, they're saying, well, sure hope someone fixes you because I'm tired of you. Or, um, well, I guess you just have to live with that. Instead of doing that, they say, uh, we're going to Jesus, come with us. We have hope that he can, he can help you. That he's at work, that he cares and loves you. Do, do you have friends that will take you and point you to Jesus? And let me ask you another question. Are you that kind of friend? Are you the kind of person that goes to your friends in need, um, doesn't uh, gloss over what's really wrong with them, and says, you're sort of a mess. Your life's a wreck. And um, you need to go with Jesus. And actually, it's okay. I'm not judging you because I need to go too. Let's go together. Do you have any friends like that? And do, are you a friend like that? And if you're not, there's a couple of reasons why probably. One, you're just too selfish. You don't actually care about anybody else's and their problems because you've got your own problems. Um, I really would do wish something good would happen to you and that would be better. But frankly, I've got this test right now and I just can't worry about you. And that happens. And I'm not beating you up. But all y'all think that way. And I do too sometimes. 
so your selfishness just gets in the way. But secondly, sometimes you think, well, you know, Jesus is just too busy. Jesus, we can't inconvenience Jesus with this little thing. And that's ridiculous. That's nuts. Because this is what Jesus loves. Jesus loves bold faith that says, uh, I'm a mess, can, and he's a mess, could, could you do something about this? Um, he's never inconvenienced by people intruding on him because they need help. Um, and the third reason we, we often risk uh, taking our friends to Jesus is uh, we, we fear what they'll think about us. We fear they'll not like us or reject us because we're religious fanatics or zealots or judging them or whatever. And uh, that's a possibility. And so it matters a great deal how you do this, of course, and when you do this. But, but generally, there's a good, there's a good uh, little note in here. Uh, you're not taking them somewhere you're not going yourself. You're not saying, hey, you're a mess. You need to go to Jesus. I'll be here when you get better. You're saying, uh, I'm a mess, and Jesus is beautiful. And won't you come with me? And if they say no, you say, all right, well, I'll be back in a little while. And you try again. It's okay. Uh, this is what mission looks like. This is what the kingdom looks like. And, uh, and this is what I think good friendship looks like, too. So pray for friends like that. Strive to be a friend like that. And uh, to pick up with the narrative again, uh, these men uh, climb up onto the roof, and the roofs were different then. And uh, it was thick, thick clay and straw, and they literally began to dig through the roof. And it probably sounded much like those guys up there stomping on our heads will sound like in a few minutes when they start again. And uh, eventually, as Jesus was teaching, there would have been dust and dirt falling on his head and everybody else's, and they would wonder what was going on until there was a shaft of light you know, penetrated the crowd, and then a hole got bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden some guy was lowered and some motionless dude is laying in front of them. And I can imagine he's nervous and scared to death too. Um, this is the popularity of Jesus. This kind of thing happens. And it's here that something even stranger than happens than paralytics falling through the sky. It's uh, Jesus says in verse 5, My son, your sins are forgiven. And if that doesn't sound strange to you, you're not paying attention to the story. Because he's a paralytic. Like, it looks pretty obvious to me what's wrong here. He can't walk. And Jesus says, you've got a sin problem. And here we have a radical difference of opinion between Jesus and us, and those people perhaps too. Uh, Jesus sees something different. He sees the paralytic. He'll address that. But he looks at them and says, there, there's, there's something wrong here that needs to be addressed. And um, as Jesus sort of overlooks initially this physical problem and addresses the spiritual condition, you should feel a little awkward. If you don't, I think you've lost something. Here's a guy dropped into the middle of a large crowd, and Jesus says, Hey, sinner. Hey, you with a sinner problem. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to fix your sin problem. I didn't exactly come here for this, Doc. Um, and what we have here, I think, it's easy to imagine, is either like a, a terrible misdiagnosis. Like, um, uh, you know, that, that's, he's got a, he's got, He's paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, you missed that one. A terrible misdiagnosis, or Jesus is just being cruel. Like, maybe he is the worst paralytic ever, but this isn't the best time to say this, you know, he's being cruel. And uh, how do we answer that? How do we answer that objection? I think it's a, it's a real possible objection. Jesus gets it completely wrong, or he's being mean. And uh, we have troubles with this because we 
as a culture have put sin behind us. 21st century Western enlightened, educated folks. Sin is uncouth. We have better ways of explaining human behavior, according to us. And it's not a real thing. Um, and if it is a real thing, then we certainly give sort of breaks to certain people, like the young and disabled and paralytics would certainly qualify, it would seem. They, they really can't be that bad. I mean, he's just a paralytic. What could he do? Uh, that's the way we think about sin. Well, how do we answer this charge that Jesus is being cruel or got it wrong? And... Uh, one thing we could say, just based on chapter 1, and if you weren't here last week, you could read it, is it's clear from that chapter and the rest of the Gospels that Jesus was completely in touch with a sick and suffering, sick and suffering world. He knew what it was daily to interact with brokenness. He did it all the time. He's not the kind of person that would get this wrong. He knows a sick person. He knows a leper. He knows a person that has a broken heart. And he knows what to do for each one of them. And we see that. And Jesus experienced more brokenness in the lives of others in three years of ministry than most of us will in a whole lifetime. So he's not one likely to misdiagnose something drastically. And it's also possible that he uh, correctly diagnoses things. He's a great doctor, but he just doesn't care. He's cruel. He is a, if you will, a divine Dr. House uh, who uh, gets it right every time but doesn't care what you think about him. He's just a jerk. And maybe that's what's going on here. But we also see that's not like Jesus either. Chapter 1, he could have healed this leper that we talked about last week in any number of ways. He does it in the most compassionate, intimate way possible. And that's Jesus' M.O. He, he cares greatly. He's compassionate. And, and there's one last objection to this dichotomy I've given you, that Jesus either got it wrong or he's cruel. I think sometimes we think, or could think, as we look at this situation here, that... Um, we think that Jesus, accusing this man of being a sinner, is an affront to his dignity. That Jesus somehow harms him by addressing him as a sinner. That it's not a very nice, dignified thing to say. And I would say that assumption itself is an affront to his dignity. Because it means we basically think that this paralytic's less than a normal human being. We don't understand the nature of sin or of this man if we think that. Because we don't understand how serious sin is. That's part of the problem. We're going to talk about that in a minute because Jesus thinks it's very serious. But also I think deep down we sort of think like, eh, it's just a paralytic. I mean, what can he do? I mean, okay, maybe he's a sinner, but like, it's not like you do anything really bad. That's actually what we think sometimes. And, and Jesus, I think, is saying, you know, his sin is as bad as anybody else's sin because he's a human being. And just because you can't, like, knock over a bank or murder someone doesn't mean you're not a great sinner. And Jesus here sees a grave condition. And we see that Jesus has a different priority. Verse 5. When Jesus sees their faith, he says, Forgive, son, your sins are forgiven. And I think here Jesus is diagnosing something that we can't see or see very well, um, which is the gravity uh, of the problem of sin. Now, to put yourself in a situation, I think Jesus is saying, in effect... Jesus is not blind to the reality of paralysis. He would know in the first century to be a paralytic means these things. Obviously, you can't walk or feed yourself or take yourself to the bathroom. All these things that you assume that are part of normal human beings, human living, you can't do. Um, but also in the first century, uh, no one would marry you. No one would marry this guy. Never have children. Never have kids. Never dance. Never worked. Some of you are thinking, That's, I could deal with that. Uh, no, no, you couldn't. And in this society, everyone worked, and everyone worked in the fields most likely. He wouldn't be able to work. He wouldn't be able to go to the temple. 
his life would be greatly diminished, uh, much more so than apparently today, thankfully, because our society is adapted and uh, for folks to be able to live somewhat normal lives. This guy lived on a cot in a bedroom somewhere every day. That was his life. And Jesus looks at him, knowing the situation, and says, I know all that, but your real problem is your heart. Your bigger problem is your heart. Now, if that doesn't bother you, you're you're either a very interesting person, um, or you're not listening. Because for the most part, in our society, uh, we really value our independence. Uh, Really value our independence. Uh, We believe it's our God-given right to be able to do whatever we want. Compound that with our natural sinfulness, and we think we're the center of the world. And uh, this is hard for us to hear, for Jesus to say, your inability to do whatever you want, sorry, your real problem is your heart. I just read the story a couple of weeks ago. It was a tragedy right here in Pittsburgh. I hate to be a downer. I feel like I'm a downer. I'll make up for it later. Um, this lady in Pittsburgh uh, passed away. She was in her late 70s uh, because she refused to jump off of her porch. Now, she was 70 and had, like, hip and ankle problems. And her doctor had told her, you know, any sudden jolts or falls and you'll probably break your hip and have to go to the hospital. But she died because she refused to jump off the porch because her house was on fire. So the picture is this little lady sitting on her back porch with her house blazing over her head and her neighbors yelling, you have to jump. And her saying, I can't jump, I'll hurt myself. And that's a picture of us, actually. We look at our circumstances and our histories and think, you know, i got this problem, I these problems here, and I'm paralyzed by these problems. Meanwhile, there's a blazing inferno going on around us. Only it's not around us, it's in us, in our hearts. And Jesus is saying, I know all that stuff going on in your lives is a mess, it's a disaster. And I know you have to be careful of those things. And I'm not saying, and Jesus isn't saying, those things don't matter. Last week, we learned how much they matter to God. But the real problem, the, the blazing inferno that will destroy you, is right inside. It's your heart. It's your sin. And uh, Jesus tells us uh, we need to care about it. We need to care about our hearts and our sin uh, more than our circumstances. And that's hard for you because you think you're the center of the world. You know, we really do. Uh, you know, when things don't go right, we think, God, what's wrong with you? Aren't you doing what I said I mean, or what I want? Why aren't people along with my agenda? And we think God cares for us based on our circumstances and we're wrong. And we think sin's not a very big deal, and we're wrong. Do we, like Jesus, think our hearts are our biggest problem? Well, uh, there are some folks here that have problems with what Jesus says, and that's the scribes. Uh, in verse 6, they, they're there, and they uh, hear Jesus say this, and they question in their hearts. They think, hey, you, you, you can't say that. You, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. And, and they accuse Jesus of not having the authority or power or ability to do this. You see, uh, Scripture teaches that only God has the right or authority to forgive sins. Uh, and Jesus is claiming the ability to do it himself. But it's possible, just possible, that what we have here is a grave misunderstanding. Uh, that what Jesus is doing here is not saying, I'm forgiving your sins, but hey, I'm so close with God that he told me your sins are forgiven. That's possible. It actually happened once. It happened in the Old Testament. Where the prophet Nathan told David, uh, God's forgiven your sins. And David's like, oh, good. Thanks. I see. It's better than that. But, you know, that's the shorthand of it. And um, 
Maybe that's what's going on here. And, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, it says, could at this point have said, Oh, you're, you think I said that I'm forgiving his sins. Oh, I'm sorry. You got me all wrong. And he could have smoothed it over and said, No, what I was really saying was, God told me, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a prophet, but I'm not like God that actually forgives sins. Jesus could have done that. He could have smoothed things over. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus took that opening and drove a truck right in the middle of it and blew the thing up. He, uh, he, he dives into the heart of controversy here. He instigates a fight. He puts himself, if you will, to the test. He, um, in verse 9, says, uh, which do you say is easier? Putting us up to the test. Um, I lost myself. Why do you question these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And I put that question to you. Which do you say is easier? Which is easier to say? What's that? Say it with confidence or don't say it. (laughs) Uh, It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because it requires no verifiable, visible evidence. Right? Your sins are forgiven. Really? Yep. I feel different. See ya. Rise and walk. Rise and walk again. Okay, come on. Get up. You know, one of these requires immediate visible verification, and the other one doesn't. And this is one of those cases where you can say anything. And there's a poem by Shelby Silverstein, and I've used this before, so some of you may have memorized it like me by now. It goes like this. Who can kick a football from here to Afghanistan? I can. Who fought tigers in the street while policemen ran and hid? I did. Who will fly and have x-ray eyes and be known as the man no bullet can kill? I will. Who can sit and tell lies all night? I might. We can claim to do all kinds of things. I can say anything, so long as it doesn't require proof, so long as no one calls me on it. And Jesus puts himself to the test here. and says, which is easier to say? They know it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. So Jesus putting himself to the test says, okay, I'll give you proof. Verse 10, that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and picked it up. Jesus is basically saying, if you want proof that I have the power and authority to do this, I'll give you proof. And this is an important note uh, for some of you that's an extra skeptic. So it's saying, Christianity, this is a rational religion where I'm supposed to believe in something I can't see and taking a logical leap in the dark. That's faith. A blind leap in the dark. That's not what we have here. We have a God who is willing to give proof. Jesus came to show you what God was like. Compassionate, powerful, able to forgive sins, and here, willing to to, to offer proof that you may know. Uh, But Jesus' authority and power to forgive sins doesn't come without a price, and this is important. In in verse 10, uh, Jesus uses this title, Son of Man. First time we've seen it in the book, we won't see it a lot, but every time we do see it, it's very important. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man, and it's not a very popular title in Scripture. And what does it mean? Well, here it means someone closely aligned with God, i.e., as I said in the first sermon, uh, that Jesus is the God-man. But here, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, to do what only God can do. And one of the last times in Mark that Jesus uses this title about himself, it's in chapter 10, verse 45. 
And here we learn about the price. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus here says, the Son of Man forgives sins. And there he says, the Son of Man forgives sins because he's willing to die as a ransom for others. That language is very important. Uh, Ransom is what you give when someone is captive, held hostage. And, And this shows that we don't really know what sin really is because we think it's just a little problem we have and some bad habits. Uh, and the reality, according to this text in the Bible, is sin is a problem that we have. It's who we are. It's part of our nature, our sin nature. And therefore, we sin. It's what we do. And it's not just something we do to each other. Everything we do is an affront to God. That we have an uh, insurmountable debt we owe to God. And that our petty sins are all acts of alienation and hostility to God. We actually want to be the center of the universe. And we want God to back our agenda and work for us. And we're not always angry at Him, but we certainly are sometimes. We certainly don't want to serve Him with our whole heart and love Him with our whole heart. And all that makes an insurmountable bill of debt that leaves us locked up in guilt. And we cannot pay it. But Jesus does. Jesus, the perfect God-man willingly gives his life as a ransom to set us free. He lives a life of perfect uh, righteousness that we're supposed to live and sets us free from the death that we deserve. Uh, That's what Christianity is about. And that's what we have here in Jesus, the Son of Man. So, to sort of draw things to a conclusion, uh, we've seen some strange things here. I think there are really some strange things here. Uh, paralytics being dropped through the roof. Paralytics walking out of the out of the house. That's pretty strange. You don't see that every day. Uh, Jesus' words here, his strange priorities. But uh, I think one of the more interesting parts of this text is actually in verse 12. After uh, As Jesus is healing the man, in verse 12, uh, we read that he rises and immediately picks up his bed and goes out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And I find their response very interesting. Now, uh, certainly, if you were there, you'd probably be amazed, too. I mean, it might cross your thought if you're the very cynical, skeptical type. This is all a setup. It's a charlatan. Meanwhile, the other 59 people in the house would have said, no, 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 that guy's been a paralytic his whole life. We know him. Um, but I'm interested in this uh, response for a couple different reasons. Let's review the whole story real quick. Just follow me. Imagine you're a townsperson in the house that day. You've known that guy that got lowered through the roof your whole life. His whole life he's been like this, or at least for the last 15 years. He's been like this. And Jesus looks at him and says, wow, you're a paralytic. And he addresses that, but he says, your real problem is your heart. And Jesus forgives his sins and then heals him and sends him on his way. And you watch him walk out into a normal life restored. What do you do next? If that's you in the house seeing that, what do you do next? I guess you could do a couple things. You could do what they do in verse 12, which is be amazed and say, we never saw anything like this. And that would be reasonable. And maybe you run home to get your sick aunt and you drag her along too, which would be reasonable. But what no one does, it seems, which I find very interesting, is no one says, I've known that guy my whole life. He's, He's actually a pretty good guy. And... And Jesus saw him and said his sin was his biggest problem. And am I? Am I better than a paralytic? What about me? If his heart's his biggest problem, what's my biggest problem? 
Maybe it's not all these other things. Maybe it's my heart and my guilt. And then the reasonable thing to do, I think, would be to say, Hey, hey, Jesus, you got any more of that? Are you still in the forgiveness business? Because I need it. But no one does that. Why does no one do that? Well, I think there's a couple of different reasons. We don't take sin very seriously. But God does. God considers it so seriously. He sends His own Son to die for it. Those of you who are here tonight as Christians, grew up in the church, you've heard this message your whole life. In fact, you've heard it so much that sometimes you're bored with it. It just, and you know it. You're like, yeah, that's right. It should do something more than it does for me. You forget. And you get distracted by your circumstances and all these other things that you care about, often more than this. And you've forgotten. You've actually forgotten how much God loves you. And, and if you will, to go back to the analogy at the beginning of the, of the sermon, uh, you feel sometimes like you're on the battlefield fighting the fight of life. You've got all these things on your plate. You're trying to be a good person. You're doing all these things. And you're wondering, God, do you care I've got a sick mother, and I've got a job, and I can't handle this. Do you care? And you've forgotten actually where you are in the story. You're not on the battlefield. You're the traitor. You're the traitor that Jesus gave himself for. That's your place in the story. You're the traitor that's hostile to God, that God says, you know what? Uh, I love you enough to come and take your place and die for you. That's your place in the story. And when you forget that, of course you're going to be distracted and cold-hearted. So what's the message for you? That's your condition. Remember who you are. Be honest about your heart and how far you are from God. And come. Come to Him. He's always ready to forgive you. There's no end to the depth of His forgiveness. And if you're here as someone processing Christianity, you don't know what to think about this, you think it's crazy, but sometimes you don't, and sometimes you wish it wasn't crazy because you really like it to be true, Whatever. Uh, two things to consider. Consider Jesus' uh, wisdom here, that your heart's your greatest problem. That maybe the biggest problem in the world that makes you miserable and everyone around you miserable is you. <laughs> that there's something wrong with you. And be willing to be honest with yourself about that. It's painful. It might be the painful, most painful thing you've ever gone through. Take an honest look at yourself. But on the other side of that is the best news you've ever heard. That there's a God in the universe that loves you so much, He'd be willing to give His perfect life for you and die for you. If that sounds good to you, the invitation's open for you too. Come to Jesus. All right, let's pray together.